The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. everyone to understand the benefits of practice makes progress as it relates to neuroplasticity. So we have to practice, 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 practice. And I think sometimes that the benefit of that repetition is really lost. And again, that needs to be embraced. If we're really embracing to get back onto that neuroplasticity and the benefits of it. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course you I know. Of course. Yeah, of course you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious to see how this is going to be. I'm excited. I wasn't, I don't really know what to expect. So we'll do this. <laughs> it's supposed to be that way because the whole thing is conversational. Yeah. I've always wanted to run a podcast. I've always wanted to be on a podcast. But now here you are. And now here I am. This is my first one. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Noggins and Neurons. This starts our student segment where we are hosting Duville University students. And that's hard for me because I went to Duville College and now it's Duville University. 
And we are hosting a total of six community practice OT students. And this means that these students have completed their level two fieldwork rotations. They're just about ready to graduate and they have to do some community practice hours. And six students have so graciously agreed to participate in the Noggins and Neurons podcast with one of their professors, a very good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, Tracy Bentley Root. Tracy and I met when I was on my level two field work for my occupational therapy assistant degree, and she helped me out a lot during that fieldwork rotation. We ended up becoming friends. She mentored me for many years, and somewhere along the path, we started mentoring each other and just having this great friendship. And if I just, I wanted to bring that up because Pete and I talked a lot about mentoring. It was always a, it's always a big topic for me. And I think that having appropriate mentors, good mentors along the career path helps us to become better practitioners. So when Tracy found out what was going on with Pete, that he was ill and he was not going to be with us much longer, she agreed to help me out with the podcast and had this brilliant idea to invite students on the show. And it's so much fun recording with students. I love having students. I like being a fieldwork educator. And I think that students bring a richness to any clinic, any clinical practice that they come to because they have fresh eyes, they have fresh ears, and they're excited. So today I'm with Morgan Wellenzone and Sarah DeMeo, and we are going to talk about neuroplasticity, and we're all looking forward to where this conversation is going to take us. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Excited to have you. So we're talking about neuroplasticity, and one of the things that we had talked about when we were preparing for this topic is that that was Peter Levine's claim to fame. He knew all about neuroplasticity and how it plays a role in the recovery process when somebody has a stroke. And I did ask you to do some research on Pete and some of the previous podcast episodes. So I was thinking maybe that would be a good place to start. If we talk a little bit about what you learned about Pete or what you learned from the episodes that you listened to that resonated with you. And I think that can get us started in our conversation. Sounds good. Um, so I did a lot of listening to the other podcasts and from what I can tell, Pete is an absolute genius. <laughs> he just, the way, like, the, he's very, like, good with his words. Like, the way he explains things, it's like, I know what neuroplasticity is, but the way he says it, it's like, oh, that, you know, it's a different way to hear it, but it makes sense. You know what I mean? And um, I think it, I can't remember, I think it was the episode Neuroplastic Beats Spastic, where he, like, tried to, like, give the textbook definition in, like, one breath. Am I correct on that? Oh, is it? I do remember when he did that, but I don't remember the episode, but he almost made it. I, I couldn't even, he was talking so fast. I was like, I, I had to slow it down and like actually process the words that he was saying. It was 
it's pretty funny. But the way that like he kind of narrowed it down to a definition and he put it as like like spasticity is a big part of neuroplasticity and it's a change in the brain to recontrol the muscles that are spastic. So when, with regards to spasticity, it's basically changing the surroundings in order to change the brain to deal with something like a spastic arm or a flaccid arm even we talked about in a, a different episode. Yeah. So um, that was like the first episode that I listened to was the neuroplastic beat spastic and he talked a lot about that. And like, that was like where I was zeroing in my attention because that's what I wanted to learn more about. And I did some outside research as well on neuroplasticity. And it's all, it's basically saying that it's, re, it's the brain is a self-organizing system. And if there was a change or a damage, like when it, you had a stroke, it's amazing how the brain can take its environment and adapt and change based off of any type of like intervention techniques that you have. And we'll get into different types of techniques that we've done more research on, but that's kind of my take on neuroplasticity and the way that Pete described it and like the outside research that I've done. I think it's a really cool thing. And it's kind of like what I'm most interested in is like stroke rehab. So it was fun to do some more research on that and talk and like work on different activities in when I was on my clinical as well. Can you remind me where you did your field work? I was at Buffalo General Medical Center. Okay. Mm-hmm. Were you in inpatient rehab? Yep. I was. I did a little bit of acute work too. Okay. How about you, Sarah? Do you have any thoughts? Yes. Morgan put it very nicely when she said that Pete was a genius. He was so exciting to listen to on these podcasts you both were I really enjoyed listening to all the other episodes as well but he did have a way with the words that he used to describe certain things that I think not only can Morgan and I maybe pick up on some things because we've heard about them in previous classes we've studied them a little bit up to this point but I think anybody listening to it can think oh that sounded interesting or, oh, wait, okay, I know a little bit about the body or, hey, I know that word, it sounds familiar and then be able to connect the dots and relate a little bit, which I thought was cool. And I really think that's why I enjoyed listening to the episode so much. Neuroplasticity, obviously Morgan and I had chosen this topic to talk about today because we both have an interest in this area. I am not coming from previous field works with experience in this stroke rehab, this area. So for me, it was a lot of exploring new exploration, exploring new topics. And as much as I've learned in school, all of this is still very much new. So to me, when I first saw the podcast, uh, What Does Work? Part one, he mentions in there, uh, work works only if you do. And I like that thing, because if we go back to neuroplasticity and even break it down more what happens in the brain when a stroke occurs and how the brain breaks down right those those neurons those those bridges break and those connections go away and i think when you work you rebuild those connections like rebuilding a muscle 
And, but it only works if you work, right? And practice doesn't make perfect, but it makes progress. And that's something that we've been hearing in school as well, which has really stuck with me because I think that it's a perfect phrase to use with neuroplasticity. And when speaking about the brain and reconnecting those neurons, right? We're not going to rebuild them in the same exact way, but we can rebuild them to have an outcome that we desire. I like that you brought up practice makes progress. I think that a lot of us in life are perfectionists and we think that for some reason that no matter what we do, it's never enough. And we're always looking for something that I wonder if we even define what it is that we're looking for. And in stroke recovery, it can be tough. It can be a long journey for some people. And I think that when we think about it in terms of practice makes progress and there is progress, it's something to be celebrated. Yes, definitely. I mean, I agree. Yes, I agree as well. I know through rehabilitation in, in any sense is difficult. Um, anytime you're, you're trying to rebuild yourself or um, get, reach a goal, it, it's going to be difficult. You're going to run into um, struggles, but I think breaking it down and remembering that every little step is progress and every little step is closer to the ultimate goal. I think that's helpful when the bigger picture seems so far and so difficult. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Sarah, because in like when I was in the hospital for 12, I was only there for 12 weeks. That's not a long time at all. And in the time that I was there, I like experienced so many milestones. And when you when I say milestones, I mean, like this person was able to put their shirt on and to them, that was a milestone, you know, like to like they were able to stand up like by themselves, or they were able to, you know, take a couple steps by themselves. Like any little feat of progress is a huge milestone, especially in the acute or inpatient phase of rehab. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I kind of attribute it to, to kind of remind myself of the progress and how difficult it can be to getting in shape, running shape, which is not easy. <laughs> and I've tried to do it multiple times and it's difficult, right? So when you start every little thing that you do is progress towards the longer goal that you have. And it may just be, you got up in the morning and you got outside or got yourself to the gym and that was it. And that's what you did. Maybe you walked, but it, it's progress. And I think we tend to look at the bigger picture a lot of the time and not focus on the tiny milestones that really are the puzzle pieces to the bigger picture. You're making me think of the arrival scenario that we seem to have, like when I get to, I will be. And we think that all of those places that we get to are going to make us happy and feel worthy, feel good enough. And those things don't make us worthy. They don't make us good enough. We already are worthy of achieving anything. We're worthy of having because we're here. And I think when, you know, just from the human condition, we experience that. And then when you add a stroke or an acquired brain injury into the picture, things can get a little bit more difficult, especially if somebody has a cognitive deficit or a neglect spatial visual spatial neglect 
problem. You know, all of these problems that people have following stroke. And sometimes as rehab professionals, healthcare providers, when somebody's on the recovery path, I think we get mixed up. If they don't show a level of excitement, then we think that maybe they're not working that hard, but maybe they are inside of their heads. Like I'm not the kind of person that says out loud all of the things that I'm working on. I just do it. And it just, it makes my heart happy to hear what you're saying, because it sounds like you have a level of insight into the recovery process that is important for us as healthcare providers to bring to the table. I think you mentioned a, a good part of focusing on the person's feelings or maybe their personality through recovery. I know that as occupational therapists, we focus holistically on the individual. So all aspects, we don't just focus on the, the medicine, the medical part. We also focus on the mental part and who are they as a person and how are they going to work through therapy? What suits them the best? And um, it brings up an, I, uh, a thought that I have about another one of the podcasts I listened to was the Jenica and Suzanne from Trio Rehab. And they spoke about the stroke depression or depression post-stroke. And I know it doesn't have to do with neuroplasticity necessarily in this topic, but I think just to bring it up a little bit, because I think neuroplasticity is all about recovery. And I think in recovery, we can't you know focus just on the physical things we're seeing, but also the mental that we may be seeing and how we can improve that state. Because if we can improve the mental state, I think that can ultimately improve recovery. You know, you may be more motivated to do the therapy exercises and continue to do them on your own, maybe when the therapist isn't around when you do go home. So I like that you mentioned that part of it as well, because I think that's a huge part of occupational therapy. Yeah, that brings up something, another, you know, I, we're going to be talking about a million things. And the only thing I'm just going to pop into my head is like, oh, on my clinical, this happened. So I'm going to bring up one, one more point on this topic is <laughs> one um, patient I had was very down on himself a lot. He, you know, rightfully so he was, you know, having a hard time in the hospital. He had just had a stroke. You know, he was a younger, like middle-aged man. He, he was very active. He was still working and he was just getting really down on himself. And every time we would go through something and he struggled with it or wasn't able to do like some part of his ADL routine that he thought he'd be able to do, he would just get very discouraged. And every time I would tell him, he would go like, oh, I'm never going to play golf again. I'm never going to be able to work again. And I would sit with him and I'd be like, listen, you are a survivor. At the end of the day, don't forget that you are a survivor. And I made him say it to himself once. I was like, say, you're a survivor. He was like, yeah, I'm a survivor. You know, I can, if I can survive a stroke, I can do anything. So it's, you know, kind of being uplifting is a big part of OT in my mind too. Wow, Morgan, that's amazing. I love that. I haven't heard that story from Morgan's uh, clinical yet. So that was awesome. Well, we like the stories, the patient stories. I think it helps people relate a loved one or themselves to some part of another person who has a stroke survivor recovery story. I really think this is Tracy. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I really think the motto of practice makes progress should really be on a wall in every therapy clinic. Because I think 
our clients need to see it. Our family members, their family members need to see it. The therapy, nursing staff, everyone needs to see it. And then we can celebrate everything that is occurring with that individual because every day progress is happening. It's just so overwhelming because of everything that that individual has just gone through, that they have the memory of where they were and how they are now. And then practice makes progress toward the new. And again, from what Morgan was saying in her field work, I can definitely just see how that should be something that a motto we all should have and embrace. I really enjoy these conversations because it keeps us grounded to the individuals that with which we serve, their our clients and their caregivers and, and their family members. And I that's the thing that I'm really starting to take away from these the student-led series is how invaluable we all are, every level. We mean the client, me, we, the, their family, their caregivers, their friends, their the providers, and then you as students. It's just such an, it's such an honor and a privilege to be part of it and to really see a different view after being involved in clinic work for many years. I appreciate what you're saying, Tracy. You know, it's easy when you get into the profession and you have a career and you've been practicing for a number of years and it's easy to get into a rut. It's easy to just allow it to become a job, which it's good to have a job. I always love having a job, but never forgetting that our clients and their families and their friends, they are humans like we are. They are someone to somebody and it's a tough road like we already established. And I think that from the occupational therapy perspective, we do have the opportunity to always remember that holistic piece and value them. And, you know, it's nice to value someone when they don't feel themselves. You know, like you were saying, Morgan, your gentleman can't imagine golfing again. He may golf mm-hmm. again one day, yeah. you know? And it's just, it's tough right in the middle of it. It's, I cannot even imagine all that goes on in a person's mind when that's happening. It's a devastating experience. For everyone to understand the benefits of practice makes progress as it relates to neuroplasticity. So we have to practice, 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 practice. And I think sometimes that the benefit of that repetition is really lost. And again, that needs to be embraced. If we're really embracing to get back onto that neuroplasticity and the benefits of it. I'm glad you brought that up, Tracy, because one of the things that we've learned over the course of time in this podcast, because Pete was a researcher, is that repetition really rules recovery. That's one of our podcast episodes. And there's some research out there that shows that about 1,200 repetitions can make one small change, maybe in just one motion. So while 
a person is practicing, they're coming to therapy, they're doing their home program in their room or at home, and it may look like nothing's changing with their body, it's changing in the brain. And because the brain controls all movement and action occurs in the brain first, those changes have to occur in the brain and they will occur in the brain before a change is seen in a physical motion. Yes, Deborah, I like that um, point that change happens in the brain and it happens at such a microscopic level that we are feeling it or seeing it, but it is happening. And that's why, you know, again, just to reiterate the point, it's so important to continue these exercises, this, these rehab exercises or tasks, because as much as we may be still struggling or that individual may be continuing to struggle with that task, it's like every single time you do it, it, there's just a tiny little change, a tiny little change again and again. And I think what I had written down in notes for this podcast was breaking down what happens in the brain when a stroke occurs. And for myself learning for me, I need to understand the basics. I need to under break it all the way down as far as I can to really understand the bigger picture and just the way my brain can process information. So what I had found through the research is when a stroke occurs in the brain, like I had mentioned before, those connections break. They are no longer sending signals to each other. And my dad likes to describe it as your brain is full of tiny bridges in the brain and information is crossing those bridges all the time. And there's tons of information running back and forth. And that's what makes you, you, right? So when those connections are lost, those, those messages are not being received. And every time we do the task, we go through rehab, we, we have the therapy session, another brick is put on that bridge and closer and closer and closer they become. And maybe they're a different shape. Maybe they're higher than they were before, lower, longer, wider, but they're still bridge and we're still making that connection for information to get past. So oh, I just wanted to break that down a little bit because it helped me understand better, again, why it's so important, why neuroplasticity is so, such an important topic to focus on and why repetition in these tasks and rehab is so important. Sarah, I'm going to add the visual of the bricks. When I talk about neuroplasticity with my clients at the hospital. Usually I talk about we're repaving the road is the technique is the visual that I give them, but I like the bricks because it, it just gives a much better representation of the time and the very small gains that are made because paving seems to go kind of quick and smooth. I like bricks. I do too. And I think sometimes the bricks are being made in recovery. And sometimes with the bricks, you're going around, you're actually building a new pathway because old ones don't always get reestablished, but the brain has the capacity to fill in some gaps and create new pathways. And so we have to remember that relearning occurs, but also some new learning occurs as well. 
And that's, that's hard. Yes, definitely. I even sometimes try to do tasks that I usually do with my right hand, with my left hand, brushing my teeth. My dad is always telling me to do tasks with my left hand, just to work the other side of the brain, he says. And it is, it's difficult. But I think, again, it puts you in a, in a unique perspective to better understand what it may feel like to learn a task. And, and not completely new, right? Because I, I still have that idea. My brain can still make those connections, but it's, it's still, it is still new. I'm still learning those motions. It's, it's opposite direction for um, the other side of my body. So I think doing those tasks does give you a unique perspective. That's a wonderful suggestion, Sarah, for family members. So they can understand how, the, how their loved one is experiencing on a certain level, how difficult it is to relearn an activity. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea for practitioners to do too. I've done it some since Pete and I started the podcast. And something that I've noticed is when I'm doing something with my non-dominant hand, I'm thinking differently and I don't feel like my natural self because of all of the extra thinking and planning that goes into that. And I think that that can help us understand why it takes people longer, what people might be experiencing when they're relearning or learning how to do these tasks again. So it's not just a motor action. You know, there is a cognitive component to that. And especially if we think about motor learning theory and what it takes to learn, there is that cognitive component and that is there until somebody has mastered that task and they can perform that motor action without thinking about it. Yeah, I think it takes a much higher level of focus too. Like you were saying, it takes a much higher level of focus to do something differently than you've been doing it forever. And if you've completely lost function of one side and you have to relearn how to do it, what's the best way to learn how to do it? Mass practice, like just doing it over and over and over again until you don't have to think about it, until it's just natural like it was on the other side. You know, I just had this thought that popped into my head. And I think I know why Morgan and I kind of gravitated towards neuroplasticity and repetition and rehab, because we are both athletes, Morgan and I, and uh, we both competed at a collegiate level. And I think to us, we were always trained for many years that to repeat a task, to repeat an exercise, and that is going to Again, they used to say practice makes perfect, but in this scenario, we think, you know, moving forward, practice makes progress. And so I think it just clicked in my head. I think that's why, Morgan, we were so focused on this, because I think this just speaks to our roots a little bit. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. Pete always said that people who are recovering from a stroke are like low-level athletes playing a high-stakes game. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Tons of like just fine movements that you don't even realize at first in such a high, like high stakes, like you said, it's a great way to put it. So I'm wondering as athletes, are you always thinking about your skill and are you envisioning yourself 
performing that skill and maybe talk a little bit about what that's like. Yeah. So I was a diver in college. So I jumped off of high diving boards and did flips and landed on my hands, somehow landed on my hands, sometimes didn't. But for a a sport like that, visual, like visual feedback, one, watching my, watching videos of myself, watching feedback, I'll do a dive and then we'd have like the recording up on the wall that would happen like 10 seconds later and watching it. It's like, oh, that wasn't quite right. I'm going to fix that next time visual feedback initially and also at home outside of practice, I would shut my eyes and I would like practice the dives in my head. I would practice it over and over in my head, not even intentionally, just because my mind was on my, my diving. And that definitely helped because you see it in your brain and your body like learns how to produce that movement. It's like, oh, I wish I could do this differently. I need to picture myself doing it differently. And then going out and practicing it and repeating it over and over and over. Maybe it's not going to be perfect the first hundred times, but practicing it and thinking about it over and over is just like Sarah said earlier, it's just going to create that bridge. And you're going to one day be able to walk over the bridge and be able to do what you were thinking about doing. Yes, Morgan, I agree. Visualization was a huge part of sports. And I was a swimmer in college. So our coaches would constantly ever ever since I was younger in club swimming we would do visualization exercises before big competitions and one of the coaches I used to have would have a timer and he would have us close our eyes and visualize our entire race and have started when we started in our heads and stop the stopwatch when we ended and we would try to get to our goal time so we got to a point where it was pretty close to the exact time we wanted to go in our, our races. And I think that just shows the power of the brain and the power that it has over the body. And we would get to those meets and we would be able to perform that time that we visualized and exactly how we visualized it. And so again, the brain is so powerful. It, is amazing. And um, I think one of the, another reason why I'm drawn to this topic into this area of study, I think visualization is, I haven't seen it utilized as much because I haven't had maybe cl- some clinical experience in this area, but I think it is so important for patients to visualize where they could be, or even just visualize that task being done. And they could close their eyes, visualize it. The brain is working. The brain is repairing itself during that visualization phase, even if they're physically not doing it in that moment. Even visual feedback, like with a mirror, I think is huge. Like I worked with patients in the hospital and when we were working on weight-bearing activities, I would put a mirror in front of them so they can see themselves and like, like watch themselves, like shifting their weight and like, oh yeah, you're right. I am leaning to this side. I'm going to bring myself back to midline. They didn't realize they were, they were pushing, you know? So visual feedback from a mirror is, I think a, a good element to bring into any type of rehab technique that you're doing in, in practice too, just so they have that visualization of like what they want to do and how to do it, like, and what they are actually doing so that they can see it and 
they can make the changes if they need to make the changes, at least try to at that moment. We're talking about some interesting interventions that are actually evidence-based, right? So visualization is evidence-based. Research shows that when a person thinks about reaching for an object, the brain is firing and the visual cortex is actually firing before somebody even lifts their hand to reach for a water bottle or for an item that they want. And I've not seen visualization used very much in rehab clinics. It's free. There are actually, so Pete's blog, Stronger After Stroke blog, he has some links in the upper right-hand corner of the page when you open it to free visualization recordings. They're actually provided by Sabo that people can use just envisioning picking up um, a bottle or I think it's a water bottle or something to take a drink from. I can't remember. I've listened to so many things now that I don't want to mix that up, but there are several of those. They're free. You can do that instead of maybe instead of turning on the television, do a couple of visualizations, then turn on the TV, reward yourself with a show because that is actually work. The brain is working, right? It's preparing itself to help the body move. And then with the visual feedback, I think that, you know how when people start to progress along their recovery and maybe they're moving out of that subacute phase where in the subacute phase, maybe recovery occurs rapidly. There's a lot of return. But maybe they start to move more towards the chronic phase and they're not noticing as much of a change. Maybe recording themselves moving and then watching that and problem solving through that in their mind, what they need to do to get to the next level is another way to get that visual feedback with their own body. Yeah, Tracy, I was wondering how much of this you've seen in practice? I was actually going to chime in in regards to what I lovingly call as the Sunday day off in inpatient rehab. So individuals are in an inpatient rehab facility and they don't have therapy services on Sunday. So visual imagery is something that I educate folks on. If I cover on a Saturday, I'm like, well, Sunday's your day off. How are we going to spend our time? And that's one of the things that I cue folks through and treat it as if you can, when you wake up while you're waiting for nursing, I want you to imagine yourself getting up, sitting at the edge of the bed, getting ready to start the morning routine. That is something that I frequently use when I'm covering in the inpatient rehab facility. I also use imagery to address other things such as stress and anxiety. So I often have individuals visualize a successful, whatever it is I'm having them work on, so they can have that entire motor plan already started before we actually go ahead and physically try the mobility. Yeah, I've had patients use visual, like visualization as a little bit of stress recovery, not in the sense of like rehab, but just like go to your happy place, just shut your eyes and think about laying on the beach 
you're at the beach, you're not in a hospital bed right now, you're somewhere happy, you know, that it's not, you know, on a neuro rehab standpoint, very like useful, but I guess in like when they're alone in their hospital room, just doing something to make them happy can reduce a little bit of stress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can also use it as priming. So if we're thinking about motor and starting activities, you could have them actually know what they're expecting in the morning and have them complete those activities in their mind's eye before they start. So again, totally as a priming activity. And I know that there's evidence for use of mirror visual feedback for priming as well. So. Yes, it's excellent for people who don't have any movement at all. So priming that brain, getting those neurons firing, lay some of those bricks down, hopefully get some movement back. It's effective for sensation too, for people who have impaired sensation, because it's hard to move and use a limb when you don't feel it or feel it the same as you used to, or feel it the same as the other side. To add on to the mirror therapies, one of the other therapy interventions that I had looked into prior to this podcast is virtual reality. And I think it's newer and it's only going to progress further, but they have been able to see some progress with patients with virtual reality. And I think that is a very interesting uh, area of therapy. I don't know how much is being done now. I don't know, Tracy, if you or Deborah, if you've either done this or seen this before. I'm familiar from a fall prevention perspective, only for some work towards my doctorate. We, were just, we did some literature reviews in regards to use of virtual reality for fall prevention. I haven't used virtual reality in the true sense of like putting on a headset, but I have worked in a clinic where they had a Wii and we used the Wii to improve balance. And, you know, when you start looking at or considering salience and meaning, adding meaning to therapy, a lot of people find stroke recovery boring because some of what they have to do is boring. But what if we brought some fun into it and there was more engagement? So I think with the virtual reality, you can bring in competition, you can bring in gaming. And, you know, people sit an awful lot in a rehab setting, probably sit for 22 out of 24 hours a day. Too long. Yeah. In some settings, they sit too long during therapy. And so why not involve the virtual reality? And that comes down to our client-centered approach, identifying virtual reality that would be of interest to the individual that's under our care or with our care. Increasing that motivation to continue those uh, rehab repetitions to continue that neuroplasticity growth. And variety. It adds variety. The brain needs variety. It likes variety. Mix it up. Surprise them. Yeah, bringing it back to um, sports, 
I might do this a couple of times throughout this because it brings up a lot of memories. But in sports, I was told many times to cross train. So even though I was a swimmer, my coaches would recommend that I also join the run, the cross country team and run and cross train because you're not only working different muscles, but you're also working different parts of your brain learning a new sport. And that could help you in the area that you want to improve in. So I think this virtual reality could offer that, like Deborah said, offer some variety and different exercises and not only keep the uh, individual's attention or curiosity, but it could also work other parts of their brain that therefore improve ultimately the goal of completing any activity such as dressing. Yes, this article that you shared with us is virtual reality and cognitive rehabilitation in people with stroke, an overview. And one of the points that I'm looking at has to do with motor planning. So there is that cognitive aspect involved in motor planning. And uh, it looks like combining robotic rehab with virtual reality in patients with chronic hemiparesis had better improvement in gait and balance. And it looks like the EEG data suggests that different brain areas involved in motor planning and learning are activated by virtual reality. And here's another snippet. It says that virtual reality can be considered a useful complementary treatment to potentiate functional recovery with regard to attention, visual spatial deficits, and motor function in people affected by stroke. Yeah, I had that um, point jotted down as well from that article because I thought that was um, interesting. It also positively affects motivation and participation. This wraps up part one of neuroplasticity. Be sure to stay tuned for part two. This conversation initiated the very first Noggins and Neurons student segment. In this round, three pairs of occupational therapy students from Deuville University agreed to come on the show. Tracy Bentley Root joins me as co-host in each of these talks. She is an occupational therapist with over 25 years of clinical experience working in a variety of direct care and management positions, serving adults across the continuum of care. She is clinical assistant professor at Deuville and fieldwork educator to OT students in her acute care position. Tracy is currently a doctor of health science degree candidate at the University of Indianapolis. And now I'll let Morgan and Sarah tell you about themselves. Hi everybody, my name is Morgan Wellenzone. I'm a third year graduate occupational therapy student at Duval University in Buffalo, New York. And I'm also originally from Buffalo, New York myself. So a little bit about me, I am doing my master's capstone on mirror therapy and constraint-induced movement therapy and their impacts on upper extremity function for stroke survivors. I have a passion for stroke and stroke rehab and have been thrilled to be a part of this podcast as it has given me an opportunity to do more research on rehab and learn more myself. I did research on the topics that I'm going to cover, including the websites on intervention devices and articles on neuroplasticity and neural rehab. 
I also chose topics that I have experienced with myself from my level two field work to facilitate conversation with my partner, Sarah, and for other students who are listening who want more insight on stroke rehab in the hospital setting. I did my level two field work in the medical rehab unit at Buffalo General Hospital and had the opportunity to treat many stroke survivors using different techniques and interventions. I'm looking forward to having this conversation and discussion, not only learning more myself, but hopefully allowing the listeners to learn more as well. Hello, my name is Sarah DeMeo and I am an occupational therapy student at Deville University. I am very excited to be able to be on this podcast this semester with Deborah. I am originally from Buffalo, New York and currently attending my final semester in the master's program. I am almost a new graduate and very excited to get out into the world of occupational therapy and am looking to pursue an entrepreneurial career path. So this may look a little bit different than a traditional path. I would be looking to possibly get hired at a site that maybe does not currently have an occupational therapist, or it may look like working somewhere and developing ideas and programs to either enhance the position that is currently there. Possibilities are endless, which is what motivates me the most to take this path. I'm also developing a hypothetical program that could possibly run within the Buffalo community. This project is geared towards individuals who have experienced a stroke and want to either get back into physical shape or improve their physical health. Although I'm not actually running this program right now, it may be something I'd like to start up in the future. This has helped me with some research for the podcast and um, better understand life post-stroke. You could find me on LinkedIn at Sarah DeMeo. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.